0: Welcome back to another episode of an Athletic Life Podcast. I'm your host, Shaneef. Today we have a very special guest, but before I introduce her, I would like to take a quick second to thank our sponsors. So our first sponsor is Deeks Pizza, uh, West Fargo, Fargo, Grand Forks, and I believe they have a location in East Grand Forks. Uh, best part about Deeks is they're open late, so whenever I'm editing my podcast, I always have a Deeks Pizza next to me because I get hungry and I know you guys do. So next time you guys want pizza, hit up Deeks Pizza. And then also, thank you to Spotify Podcast for allowing this to happen and we will get into their message at the end of the video. But today we have a very special guest, Amy Olson. She's the first professional athlete that we've had at the time of recording the video, the audio. So that's incredible. We're finally, we're getting somewhere. Thanks to Amy. Amy, how
1: are you doing? I'm doing great, Logan. Thanks for having me on.
0: No, I really appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule to sit down with us. I know you just uh, competed in the, the U.S. Open a couple weeks ago and you know, you're getting ready to start your family now or extend your family. So I appreciate it very much.
1: Yeah, no, we're very excited. I'm at about seven and a half months pregnant. So the, the U.S. Open was my final um, professional, you know, event before the baby comes. So kind of trying to shift gears now.
0: Yeah. Speaking of shifting gears, let's, let's just dive into this. Let's get into it. Could you give the audience a little bit of, you know, background information about you, what you do, where
1: you're from? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a really small town, uh, Oxbow, North Dakota, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, but it's a town of 300, kind of a golf course community. So I basically grew up with the golf course in my backyard. And my dad fell in love with the game probably a little bit before I was born. And he ended up just deciding that the best way to babysit was to bring my brother and I out to the golf course while he hit balls and give us enough snacks to stay occupied. But kind of through that process, both my brother, who's a year and a half older than me, and then myself really fell in love with the game of golf and really made it like our passion and mission from pretty young childhood. I played my first competitive event at nine years old. Wow. Yeah, so I mean... You know, my brother started playing a couple, he was probably about eight or nine, was playing some local tournaments. At one point, he brought a, a little trophy home and I was like, that is so cool. What can I play? How can I do that? Right. So he was a huge inspiration for me growing up. I looked up to him a lot. And yes, yeah, so I played my first competitive event. I remember telling my dad, um, you know, my, my dad was like, I was asking him, you know, what tournament could I play is there anything I could enter he gave me some options but he's like if I'm going to drive you I'm going to pay the entry fee like you have to put full effort in I need to see that you're committed to this so the month leading up to that tournament I hit 150 bags of golf balls in the 30 days leading up to that and I ended up winning the tournament so for me seeing hard work pay off was like so rewarding and exhilarating so that kind of got me hooked so fast forward, I would say over the next 6-7 years, I competed a lot at the local level in Fargo, you know, kind of regionally in Minnesota. And then at 16 years old, I started playing a couple of national tournaments. That's I was say incredible. yeah, once I kind of played some of those national tournaments and got to see where I stood, you know, with other juniors my own own age and um, kind of I had some success and I was able to see, wow, I think I could really take this to the next level. I was getting offered college scholarships. And so I played for four years at NDSU. Um, I ended up, I still hold the record for most collegiate wins in college with 20 wins. And then after that, I joined the LPGA tour and have played professionally ever since. So it's been 10 years that I've been able to do this as a living, which I'm, I'm super fortunate for.
0: That is so incredible. I'm going to just break it down a little bit, piece by piece there, just because uh, I want to dive into it because it's such an interesting story for me. But um, you talked about the reward of hard work and how much that meant to you just seeing all your hard work pay off. To me, at least as an athlete, seeing that is almost more beneficial than getting a trophy or an accolade or something like that, just knowing that all the time that I put into something, it it really meant something and it mattered. And I imagine you feel the same way a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've always been very process oriented. So when it comes to the goals that I set, yes, you want to win. Yes, you want these, you know, certain accolades, but a lot of it honestly has to do with personal improvement. And it's, you know, some of those goals that lead to wins are much more, they're much smaller, but they're tangible and they're much more process oriented. Um, So for me, I think like, It wasn't so much that I got a trophy at the end of the day. For me, it was seeing the ball get in the air every single time I swung at it. You know, I mean, you think about learning the sport and different things that make it more enjoyable. It's not a lot of fun when you swing and miss or if, you know, the ball isn't getting in the air. Right. And being able to see over that month leading up to the tournament, seeing every single day that I would get a little bit better. That made me want to wake up early and practice and put time in even before I had that, you know, win at the end of that month.
0: Right, it's the old saying, you know, it's it's the journey not the destination. It's the things that come along the way that really make, you know, the reward special.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you said you went
0: on and you played at the Nationals and you you saw success and that's I'm assuming when you realized that you wanted to be a college athlete and you wanted to play golf because you were getting scholarship offers for it. So why did you choose NDSU?
1: Yeah, you know, the, I had a bit of a different experience, I think, from maybe most high schoolers growing up. I was homeschooled growing up and um, going to college was a goal, but I didn't put a ton of emphasis, honestly, on getting a scholarship or playing for a certain university. Um, Even though I grew up in the area, I was familiar with NDSU, but I didn't grow up like at five years old going, oh, I have to be a bison. And so I was really open-minded kind of going into that process. And I toured. The only thing I'll say is I did want to stay local. I knew that because I I graduated being homeschooled. I graduated at 16 years old turned 17 that summer. So I was very young going into college and I really wanted to stay close to home, stay close to the the swing coach, my golf coach that I worked with and continue to work with him during college. Because honestly, like as much as yes, I wanted to play in college. My sights were really set on professional golf. So I was trying to think about what is going to give me the best chance to make it as a professional golfer. And I'm going to use the four years in college to kind of, um, you know, work towards that goal. So staying local was extremely important to me. I toured, you know, MSUM, Concordia, and NDSU, and I had such a great experience. Um, as I was being recruited by NDSU, and I just knew like that was going to be, that was going to be the place I wanted to call home for the next four years. And you know, looking back on it, you know, there's probably the reasons that I thought I was going to like it. And then when you look back, the reasons you actually like it have so much more to do with your teammates and the people that you didn't even know were going to come into your life over that time. And so I'm just really thankful for how it worked out.
0: Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like you said, your teammates are a big part of the process when you're a college athlete. You're with them every day. You know, you have all your highs with them. You have most of your lows with them. And so to be able to form connections and relationships, it really can change your, you know, when you look back, your outlook on like your college career. If you have good relationships, you're going to have better memories than if you didn't have those relationships with your teammates.
1: Oh, there's no question. And when you look back at how much you mature and develop over those four or five years, however long you're in college, so much of that development and growth is due to the people that you spend the most time with, which as an athlete is your teammates. So, I mean, I can point to very specific things that, um, and, and people who influenced me kind of during that time. And I'm super grateful for that.
0: Yeah. Speaking of those people, who do you think, you know, was the biggest impact on you while you were at NDSU?
1: Well, truthfully, I think it was my brother. So we, you know, I mentioned him before and he's a year and a half older. So we entered college, again, this goes back to the homeschooling thing. I was put in the same grade as him growing up, so we graduated the same year. That's why I graduated early. Mm. So we entered college as freshmen together. He also played on the golf team. And we both lived at home for most of the time we were in college. So we shared a lot of uh, car rides to and from school. We shared a car. And um, we were both a golf team. We both majored in accounting. So we spent a lot of time together and grew really close during that time. Um, But I would say the biggest thing was he was just such a hard worker, dedicated, diligent in all of the little things. I mean, and, and, you know, he was he was the type of person that you didn't want to slough off if you were around him, you know. And so he really was probably the biggest impact on me during those years. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. But I would say uh, my coach, and he's still there, Matt Johnson, was such a great coach for me. I was very self-motivated, and he really knew how to kind of harness that and not get in the way of that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so he was a really good coach for me. And then, you know, a couple of my teammates, I, you know, still my best friends, and we had a lot of growth together, I would say from an athletic performance you know, standpoint, but also from a spiritual standpoint. College was a huge growing experience for me spiritually, and I think that shaped a lot of who I still am today.
0: College is a huge part of like figuring out who you are, and a lot of people say that, and it might sound cliche, but ultimately the people you spend the most time with are probably the people that you're going to relate to the most just because, you know, it's who you are and it becomes part of you. And if you're hanging out with them and you're doing the same things, that's going to become part of your life. And so, you know, spiritually, if you're hanging out with people who believe in the same things you do, then it's going to help you advance those and not hinder your ability to expand.
1: Oh, no question. And it goes the other way too. And I, like, whenever I talk to, you know, kids that are maybe graduating from high school or early in their college careers, I always like to emphasize that like your friends, I mean, there's so much data that says that you become the average of the five people you spend the most time around. So yes, you're gonna become like you know, those people, but also you can choose who those people are. You know? So choose some good ones.
0: It's, it's completely up to you. you, can't, you know, you're not forcing yourself to hang out with anybody or be a part of any situation that you don't wanna be a part of. So just to make those own decisions, your own decisions for yourself, ultimately can affect you know, who you are, what you're doing and what you'll become.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So,
0: you were in college, you were playing for NDSU, you were winning a lot of events, and then you decided to turn pro. Can you describe the process of getting your tour card and what that's like?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit. So, I, I completed the four years at NDSU, I graduated, um, and then, you know, that was in spring of 2013. I'm trying to think about the timeline here. And golf is a little bit different than a lot of like the team sports that have some sort of a draft or where you, you know, sign a contract and become part of a team because golf is entirely individual. There's a process called Q school for each of the major tours around the world. And in order to even have the opportunity to play in a tournament on those tours, you have to have what's called status. So you have to earn status on that tour. Right. So at the time, and it's changed a little bit since then, but at the time, I had to go through th- three stages um, of Q School. The first was in July, so I had a couple months to prep, July, October, and December. And those three stages start with, like, two to 300 people in them. You compete, and then it cuts out, you know, so maybe only the top 70 advance from the first stage. Then those 70 are joined by people who played on like a developmental tour who had an exemption through first stage. So then those like 250 people are cut to top, uh, 80 and ties. And then those top 80 and ties are joined by all the people on the LPGA tour who lost their status the previous year. So again, you're back to like 150 people and you're all competing for 20 spots. So at the end of this, like, tournament series that they call Q School, 20 people will end up with their full tour card for the next year. I was fortunate in that I had to go all the way back to stage one, played all three of them, and was one of those top 20 at the end of the process. So in 2014, I had my rookie year on tour and was able to keep my card. Um, Over the last 10 years, I have... Maintain status all 10 years. One year I did go back to Q School to try to improve my status a little bit because I didn't have a great year, but I've been very fortunate to be able to be out there um, for 10 years.
0: So Q School is a competition. It's not actual schooling where you're learning (laughs) something about golf. Uh, Good to know. Yeah. So as you're competing, say you don't make it through stage two, do you stay in stage two or do you have to start all over again?
1: You start all over. Every year is kind of a brand new slate. But if you make it through stage two, the LPGA has a developmental tour underneath it called the Epson tour. And if you make it to stage two, there's a, you should get some sort of status on that developmental tour. So what a lot of people will do is they'll play Epson tour, hope they finish well enough to be exempt through either first stage, second stage, or even third stage that next year. Because the top 10 players on Epson tour at the end of the year get their full LPGA status. So there's there's two routes to the LPGA. Q-School is one, and the Epson Tour is the other.
0: Interesting. So there's multiple different paths you can take to be, you know, get your Tour card and maintain status. How do you continue to maintain your status when you're competing, or how do you lose it?
1: Yeah, so everything is based on points. So for every, every single tournament, has a certain amount of points that they give out based on your finish. So if you finish first, you get 500 points. You know, if you finish 40th, you might get 50 points. And at the end of the year, you know, it's it's all kind of combined on a points list. And the top 100 maintain full status. Top 125 have partial status. And then below 125, they have to go back to either Q school or they might play Epson the next year to try to earn their way back. So what
0: does partial status give you?
1: It's a little bit confusing, but imagine there's like 32 events on the LPGA schedule a year and nobody's going to play all 32. Everybody wants to play the majors. So if you (laughs) have full status, like you're exempt into the majors and any tournament you want to play in. But as some of the top players start skipping some of the smaller events, Other people get a chance to play in those smaller events. So if you have partial status, you probably get into the smaller events. And there's a couple reshuffles throughout the year. So if you do well in the smaller events, you can work your way into the majors and the bigger events.
0: So you can get into that top 100 by playing the smaller events if the top 100, some of those players back out.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Got it. Interesting. That's a very interesting process. So it's kind of like if you're in that, you know, top... 125 but not in full status you're kind of waiting for your opportunity to make something happen.
1: Exactly. Yep. Because if you think about it you have, you know, your top 100 from the previous year, you've got 20 people from Q school, you've got 10 people from Epson tour. So you already have 130 people who have fully exempt status. And then once you go to like that 101 on to 125 from a previous year, they have to start waiting for people to drop out because each field is only 144 players. Right. And plus there's sponsor invites, Monday qualifiers, world rankings, there's other ways to make it into certain events. So yeah, it's, um, it's a little bit complicated to explain when people ask me like how many people are on tour? It's like, well, <laughs> right. probably like, you know, around 170 have some sort of status but only 144 are going to play on a given week.
0: Hmm. So after you're taking this short break that you're taking, will you still have status for next season or no?
1: LPGA has what's um, called a maternity leave where you can take either one year or two years off. So since this is my maternity year, I'm taking this year off. I can either start at the beginning of next year, or I could even defer one more year if I didn't want to come back right away.
0: Oh, so you have some time to think about it and, yeah you're gonna handle that exactly well that's good let's let's kind of get into you know the actual plane of golf and how you how you do it I know that you and I have had the caddy conversation before but um, our listeners have not so I want to talk a little bit about that because like you said you don't have a caddy in college and now on tour you're required to have one what are some of those benefits of having a professional caddy with you
1: Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting dynamic. So I would say one of the, I mean, one of the best things is, you know, if it's somebody that you trust that you enjoy being around, you just have that constant person with you, um, through the ups and downs there, they generally are extremely knowledgeable golf wise. So if you have, you know, questions about like, how far do we think this is playing? I mean, there's so much that goes into a golf shot outside of execution, I would say execution is always, like, the most important part, right. but when it comes to, you know, trying to plan what shot you're going to even try to hit, the altitude that the golf course is at, the temperature that it's, it is outside, what kind of a lie you have, um, what the wind is doing. There's so many things that factor into, like, what kind of shot you're trying to hit, even if you're – you know you're 150 yards away from the hole. Right. And so the caddy can really help you – especially if you're not confident in, you know, what club you want to pull or something, they can kind of give you a little bit of additional feedback. Every player is very different on what they like from their caddy and what they don't. Some have them read their greens. Um, I've really been more of a independent player, I would say, you know, all through college, you don't have a caddy. And so it was actually a huge adjustment for me having to go from no caddy and I can just like, do this myself. And, you know, if I hit a bad shot, there's nobody standing there that, you know, I have to worry about how they're going to react or whatever. Um, so it is, it was a huge adjustment for me going from the amateur tournaments and collegiate tournaments to professional because you're required to have a caddy. And so trying to figure out what I liked and needed and then being able to communicate that to essentially a teammate, like they become your teammate. And um, you have to be really clear about what you want, what is helpful. And that took me a while to be able to figure that out and articulate it.
0: Yeah. And it seems interesting because it adds another dynamic to the game that essentially you didn't have before.
1: One of the best things is when you're like in a really tough weather situation, like, especially when we play over at the British open and it's raining and it's windy, like having someone else, Trying, you know, helping with the umbrella, keeping your clubs dry, making sure you have what you need is so, it's completely, it's so helpful. Um, Trying to do that all on your own as well as play, you're just going to end up with wet grips and and wet clubs for sure.
0: Right. Yeah. And just to have, you know, someone there to support you when maybe you're far away and there's, you know, say, you know, your husband can't make it, you have like a friendly, you know, friendly face, someone to talk to, someone that's fully backing you no matter what.
1: Yeah, they're for sure. They're in your corner no matter what.
0: So now the the opposite side of that is sometimes if you're, you know, someone who likes to do things on your own, having someone else try to tell you what to do can be a little bit challenging. Is there any challenging aspects of having a caddy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you kind of nailed it where it's, I find that, you know, a, a caddy, because they are in your corner and they want you to do so well, they want to do too much sometimes. And sometimes it's harder to com- commit to a shot when you have two opinions versus one. Right. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to be committed to what shot you're picking. You're going to make a way better swing if you're committed than if you're not. So that's where the communication part comes in you have to know what you want and what's the most beneficial. So you have to know yourself, but then you have to be able to articulate that to another person and in in a way that doesn't make them feel less than, or like, you know, they're in the way or whatever. Um, but it's genuinely, this is how you can help me the most. And sometimes that's by doing the least. And that's kind of a hard thing to figure out as you're, um, just navigating that, that partnership but ultimately at the end of the day it is a partnership and you are teammates and you both want the same thing so it's just trying to figure out what's the best way to make that happen
0: right and like you said you don't want them to feel undervalued underappreciated anything like that because ultimately yes they are just trying to help you at the end of the day but there's a book that we're reading um for the leadership council and the very first chapter is about communication and how communication is key for everything the book's called extreme ownership and so if you can communicate properly then you shouldn't have these issues um but if you don't then these things you know can be problematic and having two different opinions on what type of shot you want to play that can be very problematic as
1: well yeah absolutely and like i mean another great example is say your caddy is is reacting or is extremely emotional to how you're performing and it's like that's you know I already am feeling all of those emotions and what is most helpful for me is to have a caddy who's extremely stable can help me like get back to the next shot, not worry about the last shot, Um, you know, and so being able to have someone who's really emotionally steady and is going to basically be a good influence on you and not drag you down the roller coaster of emotion. Another great example of how they can help you, but you know, they obviously want you to do well as well as you do. And so em- emotions are natural. And so being able to communicate to your, your caddy, like, Hey, this is going to be most helpful for me. If you're like even keel and no one can tell how I'm playing by looking at you, you know? Right. Um, yeah. There's it just, just makes sense.
0: It's like, you don't talk to a pitcher when he's throwing in no hitter. Like he knows he's doing well. So, you know, just like when you're, you know three under through five holes you know you're playing well you don't need someone to feel so excited and show all this joy exactly you already feel that totally it just makes sense so you're on tour and I would say that you are a vet on tour you've had your tour card for previously when we talked you said you know there's a lot of 19 20 year olds on tour is there any like mentoring going on between the vets and like the young people on tour is it kind of like well you're a professional now figure it
1: out so I would say that there is, well, there's a, there's a small, it's a, there is a program for like older players to kind of help rookies. And so it's kind of a buddy system where one veteran player will be buddied up with three rookies. And it's kind of just like, this is your point person. If you have questions about anything, you meet for dinner a couple times throughout the season, maybe play a practice round together. And it's, it's not super formal, but it's, It's kind of designed to open up lines of communication where rookies can feel comfortable asking questions to a veteran player. And they just have somebody who their number's in their phone and it's easy. I would say for the most part, that is not utilized nearly as much as if you have a friend who got on tour maybe a year before you or two years before you. And that's pretty much who you ask all your questions to. With that said, every single veteran player is so willing to help, and that's the one thing I figured out. I was always too nervous to ask, like, my first couple years, like, oh, you know, it's Kari Webb. She was the number one player in the world when I was growing up. Like, I can't just walk up to her on the range and ask her a question. No, you absolutely can, and she would be honored. Like, that was the thing that I had to kind of get past is I self-censored because I was like, no, they don't want to talk to me. But every single veteran was extremely accommodating and helpful whenever I asked anything. I would say right now with kind of the way women's golf in particular has gone, these rookies that come out really young at 18, 19 years old have an entourage with them. So they've got their coach, they've got their caddy, they've got their physio, maybe a mental coach. They're a manager. Like there might be three to five people traveling with them on a given week. So they really have their support system kind of built in already, and that wasn't quite as common 10 to 15 years ago. So you're seeing a lot of change as far as the support system that players are coming out with immediately.
0: That's actually really interesting because, correct me if I'm wrong, but if that was an option for me and I was a professional, I would assume that those lifelines or you know the buddy system would be more of how to handle myself on tour and less of like actually playing golf because they know how to play golf if that makes sense yeah so I would think that it would be like while on tour how do I handle this like and less about actually playing golf
1: yep for sure and I think I mean it, it honestly can be a little bit of both I've seen plenty of times and you see it sometimes on like I see it on social media where somebody will be asking Steve Stricker like hey, can you give me a putting? I think Tiger famously asked Steve Stricker for a putting lesson at one point, And like it got caught on video. So like that kind of stuff does happen where it's specific to golf. But I think you're right that the majority of it is, okay, I have this media is- you know, issue I need to deal with. Like how should, I- how should I resolve it? And veterans have been through everything. Um, so there's just about no question that they don't have some sort of experience with. Um, or even just like, What airline should I fly? Like, what's the best credit card for points? You know, like that kind of stuff gets asked all the time.
0: I know other, you know, maybe you have this or maybe you don't, but with other professional sports, like they have people who are there to give them advice for things like that. Maybe it's a financial advisor or a team advisor where they tell them like, this is the credit card we want you to use. This is, you know, how we travel. This is like the process of doing it. But since golf's an individual sport, maybe there's a little bit less of that. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, no, you're totally right. There is absolutely nothing built in. You have to create everything yourself. And when you think about doing that, as, you know, someone who just graduated from college, and you have, you don't even have an apartment you're renting yet, or whatever, or home base, and trying to figure everything out from ground zero, it's very overwhelming. Um, And, you know, of course, you can... Hire an agent and agents can help to a certain degree with that, but it's even, it's a lot different as an individual sport than as a team sport where travel is booked for you. And like, these are the days of, of training camp and practice. None of that is set in stone and you have to develop your own uh, systems. Man,
0: that's, that's actually kind of unique to golf. Like it makes golf unique, I guess. And it's, it's interesting to learn about uh, for sure. Most definitely is. I'm going to give you three choices here. And then I just want you to tell me which one you think is your best advantage. So would it be your mental advantage, your physical advantage or your strategic advantage when you're playing around?
1: I would say throughout my career it's been mental.
0: What about your mental state in a round gives you an advantage?
1: Yeah, I think I've always been it's it, it, I shouldn't say I've always been. Something that I've worked really hard on has been to not allow whether it's a past shot or a past result affect my current one or even a future one. Like I've, I have worked very hard to be able to stay present. And I think a lot of times if you live worrying about a previous shot that you had, you might have a lot of anxiety or fear. Um, and, and same if you're worried about a future shot. So I think being able to stay present and control what you can control Um, has allowed me to stay mentally strong. I also think the, the spiritual development that I talked about in college and just developing perspective on what really is important and what matters has allowed me to care much more about the process and the effort that I'm putting in than necessarily the results, which has allowed me to play a lot more free. I think than I would have otherwise, if I was trying to achieve a particular result, Um, And and that's not to say that I've always done that perfectly. It's something that I struggle with and try to keep coming back to, to control the controllables and have a positive mindset, stay in the present, not worry about the past. But those things are extremely key to playing your best.
0: Oh, absolutely. Just believing that, like, there's a process for everything and everything happens for a reason can help you get over things so quickly. Just if you are worried about whatever did happen, like you said, that's going to completely affect the rest of the way you play or your next shot or how you finish up that hole. So just being able to let things go and kind of clear the mechanism or, you know, that tunnel vision, I think that's really beneficial for athletes in all sports. Absolutely. And I know that, you know, the gallery, it's typically a very quiet place, especially when someone's about to tee off and whatnot, but do you have a way that you kind of like hone into what you're doing and clear the noise, I guess you could say, is there a way that a process that you do that?
1: You know, I can't say that there is a particular process. I get teased a lot about my bubble because when I am inside the ropes, a lot of times I kind of zone out. Like I'm not, I'm not worried about who's watching or like what other people are saying. I kind of just like enter this little, I guess I'm going to call it my bubble, but one of the weird things about golf is that it is so quiet. So any noise is generally heard. So if someone, you know, yells something from the gallery when everybody else is perfectly quiet, there's no way you actually can't hear that. You right. do yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so I think one of the biggest things, I mean, I remember a specific example. I was playing the tour championship three years ago. I missed my drive a little to the right. So I am on this basically like flat sand. It's kind of like a bunker, but it's not actually a bunker. It's almost like a cart path. And there's a tree in my way. I have to hit a large left to right cut to a tucked pin on the left. And then I also have to wait for the green to clear because the people ahead of us are waiting. So I've got a long time to look at this shot. And somebody yells something out. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was basically like, there's no way you're going to get this on the green, like something like that. And... I remember just, like, I didn't even acknowledge it, like, that I heard it, but obviously I heard it. And so I spent the entire time from the time that comment was made to when I had to hit my shot, really visualizing what I had to do. Like, what shot do I want to hit? Like, trying to come up with the positive image instead of allowing that negative, like, this is what could happen to dominate my Psychology, I really spent that time focusing on what needs to happen to achieve the results I want. And so I think sometimes it's not about not hearing bad things or not thinking bad things, but it's replacing those thoughts with the positive image. That's extremely key.
0: You know, it's interesting that you say that because it is hard to not focus on, You know, things that are said like that, you know, you hear them in golf, especially because they're quiet. But, you know, sometimes in football, when there's people right behind, you know, the player's bench and they're saying things, it's like I'm not focused on them, but I can still hear them. Mm -hmm. And it makes me a little upset sometimes the things that you hear, but also it gives you an opportunity to do exactly what they say you can't. And that's what I really
1: enjoy about it. I love that to reframe it as an opportunity for mental toughness. There's a really good book that had a huge impact on me called burn your goals. And it talked a lot about, um, about exactly that. So, um, no, I love that. Yeah.
0: And like you said, I don't know why I just thought about this, but burn your goals. Um, everybody has goals, right? You know, I want to win a major. I want to continue to have my status. I want to do this, do that, whatever. I don't want to have goals. I want to have, like, I want to be someone's nightmare. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. oh, you have goals? That's awesome. I'm going to destroy them. I don't care. I, if you see me on, on the field or whatever, or, you know, they see they're playing with Amy this week, they're going, oh, shit. Like, I'm about to lose. That's what yeah. I want. Everyone has goals. Don't yeah. care. I want to destroy your goals. Yeah. That's kind of how I think about things. So when you were in college, you set tons of records, but did you have any like welcome to college athletics moments where maybe something didn't go your way?
1: Oh, man. Um, So I have a welcome to team sports moment. Let's hear it. Probably a little bit different than you're, you're thinking, but I just, I mean, I didn't play even on a high school team. So I truly played as an individual all growing up. And I remember coming into college as a freshman, and it's probably like a month in or something. And we were discussing travel suits as a team, like what we were going to travel in. And our coach, it's a little bit different because we didn't have an equipment manager that just sent us whatever. We actually got to choose. And I remember as a freshman piping up and giving my opinion. And everybody looks at me, and they're just like, you're a freshman. Shut up it doesn't matter what you th- think. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, what? How does this work? Cause I'm like from this, you know, world where everyone's opinion matters and it's who can make the most logical point that should win. Oh no, 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 no. As a freshman, like you sit there and be quiet and you let the seniors and juniors, you know, lead and make yeah. decisions. So like I had that and I was just like, wow, this is so different than any other environment that I've been in. And Saying that, I'm sure to you, who's been on a team, like what was the first team you joined? How old were you? Uh, I believe I
0: was in third grade.
1: Like it's so ingrained in you that the, you know, the the concept of a seniority, right? Right. I had no concept of that, so I remember that, and I was just a look back at it, and I'm just mortified because the this upperclassmen were just like, "Who is this Pipsqueak?" Um, anyway,
0: it's it's very fun to look back at because your freshman year being a part of a team is very very fun but also it's like the worst time of your life because you go from being in your own world and you know you're probably the all-star at your high school or for you you know you were homeschooled so everything was about you and how you wanted to play whatever yep To now you're the bottom of the food chain lowest on the totem pole And the janitor who's been cleaning the locker room for 10 years has more of a say than you do. So it's very hard.
1: And it doesn't matter if you're the, like, I mean, I came, I came in, you know, not to toot my own horn, but as the star of the team. And so for, you know, for me, it was like, wait, how is my opinion not valid? And that's just not how it works. You earn respect and you earn through time it's not by like one performance on the golf course it's not through a score that you shot it's through time and and honestly what i learned over kind of my four years is it's through serving your teammates and being there for whatever they need whenever they need it it is not about you anymore it is about the team
0: absolutely and that's how you move up the totem pole
1: yep absolutely so we have.
0: A couple questions that were submitted by fans because on the last episode, I you know I said who the next guest was going to be, and uh, a couple people texted me, you know, messaged me on Instagram, things that they want to know from you about golf. And so we're going to dive into these questions a little bit. Um, what tips do you have for golfers trying to be more consistent in their game?
1: The best thing you can do is get coaching or lessons in some way, shape, or form because just going out there and beating balls on the range or playing over and over. Yes. You're going to develop some you know, some more coordination or whatever, but if you don't have the fundamentals correct and you're just spending a bunch of time, you're going to ingrain the wrong thing. So finding someone who you, you trust taking a lesson and like then practicing what they tell you in that lesson is the best thing you can do to get better.
0: That seems very self-explanatory because no matter what, if I go hit 100 balls every day, but I'm not doing it properly, then it does not matter.
1: Absolutely. And, and it costs money, you know, of course, like you're but you're paying for knowledge and that knowledge, if you apply it, will definitely pay off.
0: So true. What are your favorite drills when you're working on putting?
1: Um, I have a couple different drills. One of them which is, some of them are hard to explain when you don't you can't visually show, but if you imagine choking down on your putter, so like kind of choking down to the bottom of the grip and then running the top of the grip up your left forearm and then putting that way. So the putter will feel very short to you, but it allows the shaft to go up the forearm and that makes sure that your left wrist never breaks down as you're going through. A lot of people get really flippy when they're putting Mm -hmm. really handsy and if you do that drill that prevents it so that's probably one of my go-tos that is really simple to explain
0: that's very interesting I'm definitely going to try that sometime if I have time (laughs) (laughs) how do you account for different elements on the course like wind temperature precipitation do like what goes on in your mind when you have these elements that you're facing
1: yeah, there's, I guess, kind of a, it's, it's so habit at this point, and a lot of it's based on experience. Um, I would say the toughest thing to judge is wind. You know, when you talk about, like, I've seen, I think, almost every lie you can possibly get on a golf course. You know, ball above your feet, below your feet, you know, thick, rough, into the grain, down grain. I know how those things generally are going to affect the ball, Um and I'm usually calculating in yards. So say if I'm 150 yards away, I know that you know the ball is a little bit above my feet, so I have to choke up. By choking up a couple inches, I'm gonna lose about four yards on this given shot. Okay, now we're downwind, so that's gonna help me about three yards. And so I'm kind of going through this calculation in my brain in yardage. And then before I hit my shot, I'm telling myself I need to hit this seven iron 154 yards, 154 yard shot, even though ultimately I want it to go 150. Cause that's what the pin is. Right. So After all those calculations, I come up with a number that I want, like that's the amount of effort I want to put into it. And then hopefully I execute that and it ends up perfect.
0: So you're doing all of that before you swing. Correct. Oh man. That's impressive. Oh that would be'd uh, be a lot to do, especially if stuck at math. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: so. you definitely get a lot of practice at math for sure. and it's fortunately, it's all pretty small numbers that you're adding and subtracting, but you just want to make sure that you add when you want to add and subtract when you want to subtract. It's happened where I've done the opposite and you're like, wait, I thought that was perfect. I was posing and it comes up you know ten yards short of the green. And you're like, oh, I added or subtracted instead of added. So that has happened.
0: That would be frustrating. (laughs) Um, So the next question is, when you're watching, you know, professional golf on TV or watching a tournament or whatever, you see a lot of golfers stepping out of their putts to read the slope um, for longer putts. Can you explain, like, what they're doing and how it actually works?
1: Yeah, I mean... There's a lot of things that you can look at when you're, reading, um, when you're reading a green. The two biggest things, if you're in a place where there's grain to the greens, so the grass is laying in a certain direction, that's really gonna affect how the ball rolls. So a lot of people will go up to the hole, look at the hole, and see which direction the grass is growing. So that's one thing you'll see, especially if people are in like, where there's Bermuda grass, Florida, Hawaii, some of those tropical locations. You'll see that a lot when they're walking, you know, like, so say their, um, their ball is 50 feet away from the hole and they kind of walk halfway in between and back up a little bit. So they have a good perspective. A lot of times they're looking at whether the putt is uphill or downhill and then how much it's going to break. So by going to what's called the low part of the green, so that's like where water would drain if. You know, just because of gravity. So you go to the lowest part of the green and look up. That gives you the best perspective to tell whether your putt is uphill, downhill, and then how much it's going to break all the time. Yeah. Every single putt, I'm always going to the low side. And so like if the putt is breaking right to left, I'm going to the left side of the ball and um, looking at the, at the line. Um, and if it's just a perfectly downhill putt, I'll go to the other side of the hole and look at it from that side. So the lowest part is always your best vantage point. Good to know.
0: And then the next part of this question, same question, (laughs) really long. Um, would it make sense for an amateur to, to read the green like that? Or is it kind of like, you know, you're not probably reading it right. Just hit the ball, get it as close as
1: you can. (laughs) Um, I think there's there's always a fine balance of just pace of play versus, um, you know, trying to do everything perfectly. But when I'm even, if I'm just playing for fun and it's not, I'm not really keeping track of score, I still, as I'm walking up to the green, I try to go to, instead of just going directly to my ball, I kind of go to the low side, take a look, go to my ball, and then I putt. So, it still gives you, I think it gives you a better perspective. Um, If you don't find that it's helpful, then don't waste your time doing it. But that's usually kind of how I approach it is instead of going directly to my ball, I just go to the low spot, take a look. And then I go to my ball market and putt.
0: (laughs) Um, How does a professional deal with their time away from home when they're competing and how do you balance that with family?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, Played on tour in a lot of different phases of life. One was, you know, single, not even dating anybody. Um, then obviously dating and then married. So it's been different in each stage of life. Um, I think the biggest thing I would say is that your life is never perfectly in balance. And the way I found to make balance in your life is if you are like for the three weeks in a row that I'm gone on the road, clearly career is taking precedent over family. So then on the time or the weeks that I'm home, I really block out and protect the time to make sure that I'm spending it with my husband and my family and prioritizing that. Um, so like every day isn't perfectly balanced, but I think if you look at a large scope, you know, maybe over a year, hopefully that it, it does come into balance. Um, so if that makes sense, I think I've always tried to make sure that, you know, what is, what does grant need? How, how often um, is it okay for me to be gone? You know, it's not healthy to be gone for three months in a row. We've kind of found a sweet spot to be three to four weeks is kind of the max. And then it's really nice to be able to spend one or two weeks together. So trying to build that. And fortunately with golf, you can pick your own schedule to an extent. So that allows us to sit down and kind of make those decisions together mm-hmm. versus um, you know, a team making it for us or me making it on my own without kind of seeing what, what he needs as well.
0: Right. And you know, that's very beneficial for you because like you said, you can, to somewhat extent, to some extent you can, you can choose what tournaments you're going to play in. And you know, those are typically set out when the season's released, right? Like, you know, what days these tournaments are.
1: Yes, um, exactly. So You
0: can, you can kind of plan out your schedule. Like I'm going to be gone, you know, these three weeks in a row but then I'll be home for 2 weeks and our family is the number one thing that's important to me at those times.
1: Yep, that's exactly right.
0: So it seems like a good schedule that you guys have working and seems like it's going to continue to be that way for a long time. Hopefully you continue to play golf for 10 more years. So
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely taken a, taken a while to get the hang of as far as what works and and what doesn't. Um, kind of like we talked about earlier, communication is so key. And just, you know, if I need to let Grant know, hey, this isn't working from a performance standpoint, like lines of communication are open. And if he's like, this isn't working from a relationship standpoint, like that's open. So the huge key is talking about it. And then again, you know, going back to teammates, like Grant and I are on the same team. We both want the same thing. And so being able to communicate about how's the best way to get there is super important.
0: Absolutely. Final question from the fans. What is your favorite course? And then what is your favorite course that's, you know, not a major or not a course that the public is highly aware of?
1: Oh, man. Well, I will have to say that after playing Pebble Beach a couple weeks ago, that one did skyrocket to the top of my list. You know, sometimes those courses that are, you hear about so much, you're like, oh, is it, it might be overrated. Like when you get there, it's not really that great. Oh, it was definitely that great. So <laughs> Pebble Pebble's number one for me right now. Awesome. As far as a uh, second, one of my favorite, and this was this was a a course that um, we used to play. We're gonna go back there. They've been doing some remodels, but Lake Merced is in San Francisco, and it's really close to like San Francisco Golf Club, Olympic Club. There's a couple other courses, Harding Park are right around there and they've held Ryder Cups and other majors. But Lake Merced is this little like private golf course that's in that same area. And people haven't really heard of, but we used to play it every single year and we'll go back once the renovations are done. My favorite stop on the schedule. So that's probably my favorite least little known course. Yeah. You know,
0: it's, it's interesting because there, there are nice golf courses all over the world but it's it's those gems that, hey, I know this sweet spot that we can play that, you know, there's not going to be a ton of people there. Or like you said, it's a private club, so it's well taken care of. Um, those are the places that a lot of people really enjoy because they're kind of, you know, off of the map a little bit. And they're not going to show up to one of these fancy courses and that everyone knows and have to worry about media or people trying to get their autograph or something like that.
1: Yeah, and it's... Um... It, it's a nice surprise because you have very low expectations. So you're kind of just going into it. be an average golf course, and then you're pleasantly surprised.
0: There you go. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit down and have this conversation with us. It was very fun for me. I hope you enjoyed your time. I know the audience is going to love it. Uh, so thank you very much.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. Thank you uh, guys. That's the episode, episode 17 in the books. Um, Thank Amy. She's an amazing guest, uh, a great person to know and continue to have conversations with in the future. So again, we thank her. Thank you for continuing to spread the love. We have had some awesome growth. I know I say that every time, but we keep getting more views. So I really appreciate what you guys are doing for this. Um, Thank you. Have a great day. And we will try to get another episode out to you guys as soon as we can. Thank you.